Now just while others are gathering, uh, perhaps we can just remain, remain seated, remain seated and sing the words of 393, 393, just while others are gathering. Uh, 393, how I praise thee, precious Saviour, that thy love laid hold of me, thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power, flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Remaining seated, we'll sing the whole of 393, just to let others come in.
would like to give uh, everyone a warm welcome. Thank you very much for coming today. Uh, especially a welcome to our speakers for the conference. Uh, Michael Wilkie and Andrew Williamson, both of Claude. And it gives me great pleasure to be on the platform here with them. With them. Of course, Michael grew up in Holborn and... Uh, Despite uh, sitting under the Bible class, which I had a responsibility for, he's managed to pull himself up to be a conference speaker. So God is gracious and merciful, and the Holy Spirit does a great work amongst us. So I'm very pleased to be here today with Michael in particular, and to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through our two brethren as they open the Word of God. So the conference today will go on from 3pm to 5pm, an interval for tea from 5 to 6, and 6pm to 7.30. Now I'll just remind everyone before the conference starts a couple of things. Make sure your mobile phone's switched off. Uh, And secondly, on Crombie Road it is a single yellow line which does apply on a Saturday. So there is a parking restriction on Crombie Road, that's the road that runs down the side of the hall here. So if you are parked there, I would suggest that while we're uh, getting started that you would, uh, if you haven't got a parking ticket, a disabled ticket, that you move your car. Now, without any further ado, I'll ask my brethren to come up uh, on the platform and we will start our, our conference by standing to sing the words of number 366, 366 in the hymn book. And is it so we shall be like thy son? Is this the grace which he for us has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, and glory to his own, blessed lightless brought. The heart is satisfied, can ask no more. All thought of self is now forever o'er. Christ, its unmingled object, fills the heart in blessed adoring love, its endless part. Standing to sing after the introduction, 366.
just ask for a blessing to be on us today. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity that finds us here, eh, willing to learn from Thy Word and to be fed from it. We thank Thee for the desire, the small desire that is in our heart. Eh, and we thank Thee for the the effort that has been put in by our brethren to come here, eh, go before Thee in quiet times and study Thy Word to prepare something with the help of Thy Holy Spirit to feed us with. We think of the privilege that we have of handling Thy Word, the Holy Word of God, the Word that is Thine and holy Thine alone and truthful. Our Father, we thank Thee for the guidance it gives us. We thank Thee for the signposts that it gives us along the way and we would just pray that we'll be blessed by being here today. We've been singing these words, and as it's so, we shall be like thy son. We look forward to a day when our faith will be replaced by sight. But until then, we take the words of the John, and, and as he would say, as he is, so are we in this world. As he is in the glory, a man in the glory, and we are viewed as being like him here on this earth. What a responsibility we have. But we have been transformed. We have been put in a privileged position. Not because of anything that we have done, totally and wholly undeserved, but all through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee for him this afternoon. We thank thee for all that he means to thee and all that he means to us. And we thank thee that we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. And we acknowledge that before thee. And we just pray that as thy word is opened and read and taught from, that thy son, the Lord Jesus Christ, may be lifted high. And that we may go from this place with a greater appreciation of him than we had when we came in. Our Father, we would remember those who would have loved to have been here today and for various reasons cannot manage. And we would just ask that they would get a blessing where they are. And we would just pray that they would bless us now. We ask all of this in the name of thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now before we sing our next hymn, let me just give you a few more announcements. I've already said the times of this meeting, 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, uh, with an interval for tea and some food from 5 to 6 and 6 to 7.30, after which uh, at 7.30 a buffet supper will be served downstairs in the downstairs hall, and everyone is welcome to stay for that. Some of the meetings for your diary, Muir have their Saturday uh, ministry meetings. On March the 17th, Jeremy Singer from Bridge of Weir will be there. That's at 7.30 at Muir. And Woodside have got a Bible teaching weekend, uh, Friday the 23rd of March to Sunday the 25th of March. Uh, at, starting at 7.30 on the Friday with Alistair Sinclair from Cross House. So it's Friday at 7.30, Saturday at 10.30 and at 7.30 and Sunday at 12.30. So these are dates for your diary. Uh, we'll just uh, stand and sing number 250 after which I'll pass over to our brethren to speak to us. 250 <clears throat> Son of God, t'was love that made thee die or ruin souls to save. 
Twas our sins vast load that lady, Lord of life, within the grave. But thy glorious resurrection showed thee conqueror o'er the tomb, so the saints, by thy protection, through thy work shall overcome. Standing to sing after the introduction, 250. Joy to uh, be back in Aberdeen uh, this afternoon. Uh, despite what George was saying, I do have very fond memories of Aberdeen. Uh, and I was saying to someone just recently that even although I think it's uh, more than 20 years since I lived in Aberdeen, I still think of myself 
uh, as Aberdonians. So it's good to be uh, back here today. It's a joy as well to share with uh, our brother Andrew. Uh, And our intention today, as God would give help, is to look at what we have entitled uh, Major Lessons from Minor Epistles. Now, I think there seems to have been a little bit of misconception among some. They thought we were going to speak on minor prophets. We're not. Uh, We are going to speak on minor epistles uh, from our New Testament. There are four New Testament epistles that consist solely of one single chapter. And so we're going to speak, uh, God willing, on these uh, four uh, little epistles, short in length, but uh, full of uh, doctrine and truth and instruction for us. Uh, So we're going to turn, first of all, today to the epistle to Philemon, please. And then our brother Andrew uh, will take 2nd and 3rd John. And finally this evening, uh, in the last session of the conference, God willing, we'll have a look at the little epistle of Jude. So we'll turn to Philemon, please, and we'll just read the entire epistle together. It starts, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, her brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow labourer, and to our beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self beside. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Now salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow labourers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. 
And we trust that God will bless to us the reading of his word this afternoon and our consideration of it together. Now we're going to, uh, with the help of God, look at this uh, very interesting little epistle together uh, this afternoon. And the sort of uh, basic uh, way in which I wish to do that is this. We'll just run first of all through the sort of background story. uh, Just in case there are those here who are not familiar with the actual story itself. Uh, It's always a danger sometimes just to assume that people know the background story to an epistle. So we'll take a few moments just to run through that story so it's clear uh, in all our minds. And then we want to look at some of the lessons that we learn uh, from the epistle, just in a very simple way. Lessons that we learn for ourselves uh, as believers. Uh, And then I want to look at uh, the epistle, and particularly uh, the second half of the epistle, uh, as an illustration of the gospel. I would go as far as to say, and I'm conscious it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and perhaps a little bit just to uh, stir up a bit of thought, but I would go as far as to say that in the epistle to Philemon, we have the greatest illustration of the gospel that you find in the whole of your New Testament. I think that what we have here is a greater and deeper and more detailed illustration of the gospel than you will find perhaps in any of the parables. Now perhaps we could argue about the details of that, but we are going to see that what we have in the events described for us in in this very short little epistle is a, a tremendous illustration of some of the truths of the gospel that perhaps sometimes we don't appreciate in detail. And I would certainly suggest that if you want to have a grasp of the doctrine of the gospel, if you want to have a good understanding of the gospel, a grasp of the theology of the gospel, get an understanding of what happens in this epistle and you won't go far wrong. Now I know you have to understand more than just this epistle to understand the gospel, but nevertheless uh, we have here the gospel illustrated in a way that I think is unique in the whole of our New Testament. And so that's the way we're going to to set out and deal with things uh, with the help of God uh, this afternoon. So let's come and just deal first of all with the background story. I know that to some it will be very familiar, but again just to refresh it and make sure it's clear uh, in our minds before we come uh, to deal with it. There are three main characters that are involved in the story. Uh, There is Paul, and there is Philemon, and there is this man called Onesimus. Now Paul, of course, is well known to us. He was the great uh, servant of God, the great apostle of the Gentiles who wrote uh, much of our New Testament, all the uh, preceding epistles and so on from Romans uh, right through to Philemon. And if you include Hebrews in that, well, we'll not argue about that this afternoon. Uh, But Paul was one of the great writers uh, of our New Testament. uh, And in the context of Philemon, he's described as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So Paul is in Rome. Uh, having travelled there, as we read in the book of the Acts, uh, and he is a great servant of God who is in prison in Rome. And he's writing to this man who is called Philemon. Now, Philemon was a wealthy man who lived in the town of Colossae. We know that he was uh, wealthy because it speaks about, uh, in verse number 2, the church which is in thy house. And therefore, he was a man who lived Uh, in a house that was big enough for the church to gather. So therefore he must have been uh, a wealthy man. The other reason that makes us think that he was a wealthy man uh, is because he had uh, servants. 
Uh, and Onesimus was one of those servants. When we come to think of Onesimus, that the story seems to be that Onesimus, having been uh, a bond servant, uh, that is a slave of Philemon, had done something that was wrong. Perhaps he had stolen from Philemon. Now, we say perhaps because the epistle does not make that 100% clear to us. And there's a very specific reason for that that we're going to think about uh, later on in uh, the meeting. Uh, But when we come down, for example, to verse number 16, uh, it says that when Onesimus uh, is to be received back by Philemon, he is not now a servant, but above a servant. So Onesimus had been a slave of Philemon, a bond servant of Philemon. Uh, He had done uh, something wrong. Verse number 18, if he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught. So the suggestion is that Onesimus had stolen from his master, had then run away to Rome in an effort to escape Uh, detection and punishment while in Rome he had met Paul and through the preaching perhaps of Paul he had got saved he had become born again he'd been converted he'd become a Christian so for example uh, when Paul speaks about him in verse number 10 I beseech thee for my son Onesimus whom I have begotten in my bonds Now, clearly that's not a a literal, physical begetting of children. It refers to a spiritual birth. And so it seems, therefore, to be that Onesimus the slave had stolen, had run away, had met Paul, had been converted, had been saved. And the purpose now of Paul writing the letter is for Onesimus to go back to Philemon and to try to put right the problem that had arisen between the two of them. And so Paul is not, he's not just going to send Onesimus back, but Paul is going to send Onesimus back with uh, what we might call a covering letter, a letter of explanation, uh, a letter, these days we would describe a letter of commendation. I know we use the expression in a different context. But Onesimus is going back to Philemon uh, with this letter explaining what has happened, and Paul is asking Philemon uh, to receive uh, Onesimus back. So that is the kind of background to the story. That's the storyline that seems to lie behind the epistle. Now there are a number of reasons why, just before we come to deal with the lessons that we we learn from uh, the epistle, there are a number of reasons why uh, Paul sends Onesimus back. Because uh, when you come uh, down to verse number 13... Uh, Paul says, I would have retained him with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, actually, I could very well have kept Onesimus here. I I could have found plenty of things for Onesimus to do. But I'm sending him back to you, Philemon. And I want to suggest there are four reasons why Paul does that. Firstly, because that was what the law of Rome at the time required. A runaway slave had to be sent back to his master, especially if there had been some sort of uh, wrongdoing. And so Paul is careful just to observe uh, the uh, requirements of the law at that particular uh, time. Secondly, he is careful to respect Philemon's rights. In those days, a slave was regarded as the property of his master. A slave had no rights of his own. Uh, There were certain situations in which he could buy his freedom, but but by and large, 
Uh, the slave belonged to his master. His duty was to remain with his master. And therefore Paul is careful just to respect the rights of Philemon. But thirdly, Paul is going to give to Philemon an opportunity. Paul is going to give to Philemon an opportunity to demonstrate the mercy and forgiveness that Philemon himself as a believer has received. Philemon has known forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, Philemon has known that. And so Paul is going to give to Philemon the opportunity to show something of the kindness that Philemon himself has been the recipient of in a spiritual sense. Now there's one other reason that I think explains, or perhaps is in Paul's mind, uh, but I'm going very specifically to leave that until later on in the meeting. So just pigeonhole in the back of your mind that there is uh, another reason why uh, Paul is sending Onesimus back. So, what then are the lessons that we are going to learn from this epistle? What's the point of it? It's all very interesting to to hear this story, and it's all very heartwarming about people being reconciled, and, and, and so on and so forth. But what's the point of it for us as believers? There are a number of very practical lessons that I think we can learn from this. First of all, when we come to think about the character of Philemon himself, Paul says in verse number 12, I've sent sent Onesimus back, thou therefore receive him. So Paul is expecting Philemon to be marked by a spirit of forgiveness. Now let's just challenge ourselves with that, shall we? Right at the very start of our meeting. I wonder how much you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus, are characterized by a spirit of forgiveness and mercy and graciousness. You see, Philemon was the one who was in the right. Philemon hadn't done anything wrong. Philemon was the one whose whose interests had been undermined. But Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you and... I want you to receive him. Not not as a servant, but as a brother. Now what about you and me? When someone does something that inflicts an injustice upon me, or upon you, I wonder how willing we are to forgive It would be true to say, wouldn't it, that if we had a grasp of the greatness of the forgiveness that we as believers have received, it might make us more willing to forgive those who transgress against us. Now, I'm not saying that sin is to be swept under the carpet, you understand that, but you think of that parable of those two debtors and the, the great debt that was forgiven that, that, that man who owed the tremendous debt and, and he went and found his brother who owed him those few pence and he took him by the throat and, and so on and so forth pay me what thou owest and if only he had had an understanding of the greatness of the forgiveness that he himself had received he might have been more gracious 
to others. I wonder what about you and me. If I have in my heart an unforgiving spirit, it might just be because I do not have an understanding of how great the forgiveness is that I have received. And that in turn might just be because I have lost a grasp of the understanding of how serious sin is before God. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, just to judge ourselves by the standards of the world round about us and to forget that we ought to judge ourselves against the standard, the inflexible standard of divine holiness. And when we think of the price that was paid to, to procure that forgiveness at the cross, brethren and sisters, if we had a, great, a, a true understanding of the greatness of the forgiveness that we have received, we sang about it, didn't we? What a debt of love we owe thee, love that we can ne'er express, since we by the Spirit know thee, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. If we had a grasp of that, I wonder what it would do to our attitude of forgiveness. But there's another side to that coin, of course, and it's this, that Onesimus has a responsibility to try and put things right. Philemon is expected to be gracious and forgiving, but Onesimus is expected to go back and try and put right the thing that that he has done wrong. And again, that's a challenge to us, isn't it? If I have done someone wrong, I wonder if I do what I can to make... I I know there are certain situations that you cannot put right. And there are certain situations that can never be undone. But I wonder, is there that willingness in my heart, first of all, to admit that I was wrong? Not always an easy thing. And having acknowledged that I have been in the wrong, to try and do what I can to put the thing right. Now, Onesimus, of course, if he has stolen... Perhaps he doesn't have the ability to put it right, but nevertheless he's going to do what he can. And he's going to go back, and he's going to try and put right, in whatever way he can do it, he's going to try and put the thing right. What about you? What about me? It's interesting, of course, isn't it, that these two aspects, these two responsibilities are a reflection in many ways of the character of God himself. You see, the reason why we ought to be forgiving and gracious and loving is because God himself is love. And God is gracious and God is kind and God is forgiving. And if we are here as the people of God to represent God upon earth, then we ought to give a true representation of God upon earth as far as we can. And so because God is a God of forgiveness, it is our responsibility, therefore, to show that. But God is not only a God of, of, of love and forgiveness. The scripture says, not only God is love, but they say God is light. And God is righteous. And therefore, we as believers ought to be characterized by standards that are, that are consistent with divine righteousness. And so, God is love, and therefore Philemon is expected to forgive. And God is light... And therefore Onesimus is expected, where possible, to put right that which has been wrong. Well, there's a third little very practical lesson that we can learn from this. And it's this, that as believers, when we come to think of of Paul, as believers we ought, where possible, to try to encourage reconciliation between others. 
Now, you understand, of course, that we're, we're not suggesting that we go uh, meddling in other people's affairs. And, and trying to sort of interfere as busybodies. And that's, that's not what we're suggesting. You understand that. But here's Paul. And Paul recognizes that Philemon ought to be forgiving. And so he sends Onesimus back. But he also recognizes that Onesimus can't restore to Philemon what he's taken away. So Paul says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll bring about a situation in which it's easy, Onesimus, for you to go back. I'll offer to pay your debt for you. And Paul is prepared to do what is necessary to make it easy for reconciliation to take place. And, and so he's going to bring about this situation. He's going to pay the price, he's going to send the letter, etc., etc. Again, what about you and me? If I have the ability and the opportunity to be an influence for good in a situation, to bring together those who have been, uh, who have been parted, who have been, who have been separated... I wonder if I'm willing to do it. Not always an easy thing to do. But here's Paul and he is willing to pay that price, to do what is necessary uh, to bring about reconciliation between these two people who have been separated. Now there are another of, of, of other practical things that we can learn from the epistle but we'll perhaps just leave that and you can look into it in your own good time. There are some other lessons that we learn from the epistle which are more doctrinal in nature. Or more sort of theoretical, not quite so much practical. So, for example, one of the things that we learn from this epistle is this, that salvation does not cancel earthly guilt. Salvation does not cancel earthly guilt. If it did, the uh, courts of our land would be full of people professing that they had become believers since they committed whatever crime it is they're accused of uh, and therefore well it doesn't matter if they've been found guilty because now they've been saved God has forgiven them therefore that previous crime can be ignored that's not what the word of God says here is an SMS he has done wrong he's got saved the fact that he has got saved does not cancel out the fact that he is guilty we presume of theft from his master. Salvation does not cancel earthly guilt. That is why Onesimus has to go back and try and put the thing right. So salvation does not cancel earthly guilt. The, the, the law of the land is to be obeyed, it is to be respected. Uh, the law of the land must be allowed to take its course. Uh, and it is not our role as believers to uh, seek to undermine the law or to overturn it. I, I'm not speaking about uh, laws that are, are contrary to the word of God. But I'm speaking about laws that are consistent with the word of God. It's very clear we can show, for example, from uh, the epistle to the Romans, uh, that these authorities have been established by God and are there to be respected and obeyed as far as is consistent with Scripture and therefore salvation does not cancel earthly guilt and the, the rule of law must be uh, obeyed. The other thing that we learn, or one of the other things that we learn from the epistle is this, that salvation does not abolish social relationships and responsibilities. 
Here is Onesimus and he's coming back. But he's coming back in one sense. I know he's no longer a servant in that sense. But he is coming back as a servant in a lust. He's not coming back as Philemon's equal. He's not able to say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can just tell Philemon what I think about him. And I can treat him as an equal. And I don't need to show him the respect that I had to do when I was his bond servant. That, that is not the case. Salvation does not abolish social relationships. Now you say, how does that apply to us today? Because after all, I don't have bond servants and I am not likely ever to be a bond servant uh, in the grace of God. How does that apply to us today? Well, very simply, we'll give you an example. Let's suppose that you have the privilege of working for someone who is a believer. That doesn't mean that you can treat them uh, in a way that, and, and, and fail to show them the respect that you would show for a boss who is not a believer. Salvation doesn't abolish uh, the requirement to show respect to those who uh, deserve it. <clears throat> I'm just conscious that time is, is moving on, and I do want to come to, to Philemon as an illustration of the gospel. But one final point, perhaps just in the lessons that we learn from the epistle, uh, and it would be this. That one of the things that we learn from the epistle here, and I want to choose my words very carefully at this point, one of the things that we learn from the epistle here is this, that bond service in and of itself is not condemned in the word of God. Now I'll say that again, bond service in and of itself is not condemned in the word of God. Paul doesn't write a letter to Philemon saying to Philemon, Philemon, Onesimus has been a bond servant, but that's not consistent with Christianity, so I want you to set him free. And so bond service in and of itself is not condemned in the word of God. Now we need to be very careful, I'm specifically not using the word slavery, because that conjures up in our minds a different sort of idea entirely. And when we think about slavery, we think about uh, oppression, and we think about violence, and we think about man stealing, uh, and we think about branding and chains and whip and all that sort of thing. And we think about the uh, the, the slave trade, for example, where uh, men and women and children sometimes were taken from Africa and sold in the West Indies, and so on and so forth. Now the scripture is very, very clear that oppression of a bond servant is absolutely forbidden. So for example, when you go uh, to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 4, there is very clear instructions given that masters are to be fair, they are to be kind, they are to be just, they are not to mistreat those who are servants. Now you know of course, perhaps we should just explain this, Now when we think about bond service, there are a number of different types of service uh, and servants that are are thought of in the word of God. Uh, Sometimes we have hired servants, that is those who uh, would willingly agree with uh, someone else that they would come and they would serve him for a particular time and for a set of wages uh, and it would be a contract very similar to what I suspect most of us would have in our ordinary employment, a hired servant. Uh, So, for example, you remember uh, Jacob and Laban in the Old Testament. Jacob would come and he would serve Laban seven years and his wages would be that he would be allowed to marry uh, Rachel and Leah and so on uh, and so forth. Hired servants. But bond service was different. 
Bond service was a situation where a man uh, was perhaps born into a situation where he had no uh, rights of his own. He was regarded as the property of his master. Uh, he, his, his role in life, his duty in life was purely and simply to serve that master. Now scripture never attempts uh, to undermine that particular social structure as a concept. But it does say that oppression of someone in that situation is wrong. And I suggest that one of the reasons why scripture never attempts to actually undermine or to abolish that particular concept of bond service is this. Because it is possible for a believer to serve and glorify God no matter what their earthly situation might be. So if you are a bond servant, you can glorify God in that situation. If you are a master and you have bond servants, you can glorify God in that situation. If you're a hired servant, you can glorify God in that situation. If you're a free man, you can glorify God in that situation. So in that sense, there's no need to abolish bond service because it is possible for a believer, no matter what your circumstance, to glorify God in your particular situation in life. Now, the way in which you do it will differ. But scripture never attempts to abolish these things because, for other reasons, for, among other reasons, it is possible for a believer to glorify God no matter what situation they are in. <clears throat> but I want to come and look now at the epistle as an illustration of the gospel. <clears throat> and I'm going to repeat just what I said right at the start. That I think in this epistle we have, uh, to my mind at least, the greatest illustration of gospel truth that you will find anywhere in your New Testament. And if you have a a grasp of, of what is being illustrated for us here, it will certainly help your understanding of the gospel, particularly if you're involved in the preaching of the gospel. Let me just digress for one moment. I take it that we are all involved in the preaching of the gospel. I'm not talking particularly about men who stand up here, but the neighbour that you speak to across the fence, the old lady that you go to have a cup of tea with, the friends at school, the workmates, the opportunities you do get to stand on a platform, brethren, if God has given you that responsibility. I trust you've got an understanding of the gospel. Now, one other thing before we come to deal with it. Bear in mind that we do not base our doctrine upon illustrations. We have to be able to prove any illustration. If we interpret an an illustration in a particular way, we've got to be able to prove it from other scriptures. We won't have time to do do all of that uh, this afternoon. But what we have here is an illustration of the gospel. And if you have an understanding of what is taught in this illustration, it will be of great benefit in in, in gospel uh, preaching. So let's come and think about Philemon as an illustration of the gospel. One of the things that we learn from the epistle in, in, in this little context is this, that the purpose of the gospel is to reconcile man to God. The purpose of the gospel is reconciliation. Man has been in a situation where his duty was to serve God. That was where Onesimus found himself. He was, he was, was he born? Well, we, we don't know. He certainly was in a situation where his duty was to serve 
Philemon. But something came in, a problem came in, and it separated the two of them. And what Paul is now doing is bringing about a situation where reconciliation is possible. And so the purpose of the gospel is to reconcile man to God, to bring man back to what he ought to be. The purpose of the gospel is reconciliation. But in order for reconciliation to come about, three people, we'll just use the word people for the sake of the illustration, three people have a role that they must fulfill, and only when those three people fulfill their role is, is reconciliation possible and righteous. Only when these three people fulfill their respective roles is reconciliation possible on a righteous basis. Now that is the unique aspect of the gospel. That it allows man to be reconciled to God righteously. No other religious message in the world does that. So three people have to fulfill their role. We'll call it that just for the sake of of the illustration. The first person that must fulfill his role is Philemon. We'll think of Philemon first. And Philemon as a picture of of God in the passage, God as, as the one who has been wronged by man's sin, the thing that must be present in Philemon before reconciliation can take place is this, there must be grace in the heart of Philemon. That's point number one. If it wasn't for the fact that God is a God of grace, reconciliation would never be possible for mankind. When we think about grace, what we mean very simply in this context is this. We mean that Philemon must be marked by a willingness to forgive when there was no legal requirement for him to do so. And you understand, brethren and sisters... That God is under no obligation whatsoever in terms of of, of law and righteousness and justice. God is under no obligation to be reconciled to mankind. God is under no obligation to forgive mankind. God is under no obligation to do anything for mankind whatsoever. And had it not been for the fact that God is a God of grace... There would be no hope of us ever being reconciled to God. So the first thing that must be fulfilled is that there must be grace in the heart of the one who has been wronged. But there's a second thing that must be fulfilled. And it's this. There must be one who is willing to pay the price that is able to bring about that reconciliation. So here's Paul. And Paul is going to do two things. And again, if you have an understanding of this, it will will clarify your understanding of of, of the preaching of uh, the gospel. First of all, Paul is going to pay what is necessary to ensure that Philemon's rights were protected. Now that is of fundamental importance when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. 
Paul is going to pay the price that ensures that Philemon's rights are respected. Now, if we were talking about the theology of the gospel, we would call that propitiation. That's, that's what the scripture means when it talks, for example, in, uh, in, in 1 John chapter 2, about the Lord Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Onesimus has, has been a servant. His duty has been to uh, serve his master Philemon. He has not done so. He has stolen. He has run away. Philemon, to bring it into modern language, Philemon's bank account is deficient. Philemon has not received all that he ought to have received. But Paul is willing to pay the price that puts, if you like, into that bank account all that is necessary and all that ought to have been there. He's willing to pay the price to protect the rights of Philemon. You understand, brethren and sisters, that was what happened at the cross. That God, God received from the Lord Jesus in his death upon the cross everything that God ever ought to have received from mankind. In the Godward aspect of the death of the Lord Jesus, God was receiving everything that God ought to have received from mankind. So that's the first thing that Paul is going to do. He is going to ensure that Philemon's rights are protected. But there's another thing that Paul is going to do, and I don't know if you noticed it in the reading. <clears throat> Look at verse number 18. Or, or for the sake of connection, let, let's read verse number 17 first. If thou count me as a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay. So Paul is paying the price to protect Philemon's rights. But do you notice what else is happening? Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, when Onesimus comes back, I want you to receive him... As if you were receiving me. And when it comes to the matter of the debt, I want you to treat me as if I was Onesimus. You see what's happening? Paul and Onesimus have changed places. Again, to use a, a theological word, we call that substitution. That is that I, as a believer, can say... That when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross, he died instead of me. Now, by the way, it's only the believer that can say that. He died in my place. He bore the punishment that I should have borne. He suffered instead of me. He gave himself in my place. And when I come as a sinner to, to, to God in repentance, I am welcomed, speaking reverently, as if I was him. You see the wonder of the gospel. It's illustrated for us that here is Onesimus, and he's going to be received back as if he was Paul. And here is Paul, and he's going to pay the price as if he was Onesimus. And Paul and Onesimus have changed places. 
And I, I know there's a certain sense in which there's a certain sense in which we can we can never be received as, as the Lord would be that the Lord speaking reverently is always going to be unique and special and and and, and the, the, the only begotten in the heart of the Father and we understand all of that. But when it comes to the matter of salvation the wonder of it is that when I come in repentance and faith the process that we sometimes call substitution takes place and, and, and literally the saviour and the sinner change places and he was made sin for us him who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and so Paul as a picture of the Lord Jesus is willing to pay that price that protects Philemon's rights so that when Onesimus does come back he can righteously be received back because Philemon's bank account is full and nothing is lacking and righteousness has been observed and Paul is willing to pay the price as if he was Onesimus and Onesimus is welcomed back as if he was Paul but there's a final person that has to fulfill their role and of course that's Onesimus you see Philemon can be as gracious as he likes and Paul can be as willing to be the substitute as he can possibly be but until Onesimus comes and actually takes that letter from Paul and goes back to Philemon the whole thing is, 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 is worthless well, it's, it's not worthless in, in the moral sense but it, it's, it's ineffective it's of no benefit to Onesimus and so Onesimus has a picture of the sinner. He has to show two things. Number one, he's got to show repentance. That is, he's got to come back and he's actually got to go to Philemon and he's got to return to the place where he went wrong and return to the one that he has wronged. And he's got to come back in confession and as a guilty sinner. And he can't come back with pride and, and, and demand to be received as a brother and come back with his head held high. He's got to come back in the situation in which he finds himself. He's got to come back as a guilty man. And he comes back acknowledging that guilt. And that's repentance. <clears throat> but not only must there be repentance, there must be faith. You see, here's an SMS. <clears throat> And he's sitting in the prison cell with Paul. And he's explained the situation. And Paul says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay the price for you. And I'll write you the letter. And if you take that letter and go back to Philemon, Philemon will receive you as if you were me. And Esmeralda says, well, that's wonderful. But until he actually... puts his trust in what Paul is offering it's not going to work it's a remarkable display of faith because Philemon had the legal right as the wronged master he had the legal right to put Onesimus to death when he came back usually death by crucifixion so here's Onesimus and what's he going to do he's going to come back and he's coming back in faith. 
Now notice please, and and notice the, the remarkable accuracy of scripture in this regard. Notice please that his faith is not in Philemon. His faith is in Paul. Because he's coming back to one who has the legal right to put him to death. And his entire future hinges on a promise that Paul has made. And Onesimus comes back to Philemon. And and there's a danger perhaps in imagination. But let's just allow ourselves to imagine that Onesimus comes back and he, he knocks on the door of that house in Colossae. And Philemon opens it. I know that Philemon wouldn't have opened his own door. He'd had a servant to do that. But for the sake of the, of the illustration. He knocks on the door. Philemon comes to the door. Oh, it's you. What do you want? I want you to take me back. Take you back? On what grounds am I going to take you back? On the grounds of the promise made by another man. I want you to read that letter. And the entire future of an Onesimus hinges on that letter. That is what Onesimus is putting his trust in. That's what his faith is in. And you'll notice, by the way, that what he is putting his faith in is not how much Onesimus means to Philemon. And it's not in how much Onesimus means to Paul. What his entire future hinges upon is the value that Philemon puts upon Paul. Did you notice that? If you count, Paul says to Philemon, if you count me as a partner, receive him as myself. Brethren and sisters, when you get an understanding of the, of the, the theology of that, the, the typology of that, it brings to the heart of the believer an unparalleled security and peace. Because the thing that guarantees your salvation and mine, when we came that, that day, that night, when we came in faith through the Lord Jesus to God, The thing that guarantees your salvation and mine is this. It's not how much God loves you or me. It's not how much you matter to to, to God or how much you matter to the Lord Jesus. What guarantees your salvation is how much Christ matters to God. If you count me as a partner, says Paul, receive him as myself. Not if you count him as a partner. Not if you have enough grace in your heart. If you count me as a partner, receive him as if he was me. You notice again the accuracy of scripture that that, that Onesimus comes back. And what does he come back? He comes back in repentance towards the one he has wronged. And is it Acts chapter 20 and verse number 21? Repentance towards God. And faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the believer comes back in repentance towards God and in faith that the value of the Lord Jesus to God 
is enough to guarantee your acceptance and mine before him. I'm conscious that the time is almost gone and I will try and give our brother Andrew the time. I want just to think very quickly about some of the outcomes of reconciliation. This is a wonderful thing. Outcomes of reconciliation. I'm going to suggest four of them. You can perhaps find others uh, in your own uh, time. The outcomes of reconciliation. A new relationship exists. Look at the contrast that you find in verses 15 uh, and 16. He departed for a season. Receive him forever. He was a servant. He's now a brother beloved. It was a fleshly relationship. It's now in the Lord. And so on and so forth. A new relationship exists. A closeness of relationship that never existed before. You understand, of course, that when, when, when you and I got saved, there was, there was a new relationship that was established on that day. A new relationship between us and God. A new relationship between us and each other. A new relationship as a result of reconciliation. I said there was... Uh, well, I'll come to that perhaps just in a second. You, you notice one of the wonderful things that we, we, we did just hint at earlier was this. That we don't actually know what Onesimus did. <coughs> Isn't that a wonderful thing? That there's no record in Scripture of actually what was done wrong. You ever thought about that? If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee, or put that on mine account. Isn't it a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters, that there does not exist in heaven a record of your sin and mine? Dealt with at the cross, gone forever, punished at the cross. Not not overlooked at the cross, not swept under the carpet at the cross, but dealt with. The record abolished. I remember on one occasion, our brother Malcolm Radcliffe speaking on John chapter 13, the, the, the Lord washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel. Why did he wipe them with the towel? He wiped them with the towel to take away even the evidence that cleansing had ever been necessary. Brethren and sisters, isn't it a wonderful thing that God just doesn't overlook our sin and in the, the, the picture of the epistle there isn't even so much as a record of what went wrong that must have been a tremendous thing for an estimate. he comes back and, and, and someone else in the household says an estimate, you're the man that stole oh well where's the record of that well let's, let's have a look at what Paul said about it no record here the abolishing of even the record of previous wrongs one of the reasons the fourth reason that I mentioned earlier that I thought uh, why Paul sent him back was this I want you to imagine this is a very dangerous thing perhaps imagining but nevertheless let's imagine that you are the person in Colossae who is responsible for carrying out crucifixions and you hear one day that Onesimus has come back Onesimus has come back right that will be a bit of business for me tomorrow then and tomorrow comes and Philemon never comes to see you. Bit odd. An SMS has a returned slave. He should have been crucified. So what's going wrong? And so a couple of days go by and still it never happens. And an SMS is out and walking about in Colossae. And, and you just can't understand this. And you go to say to Philemon, Philemon, what's all this about? And Philemon says, well, that's what the Christian God did for me. And every day that Onesimus walked about in the streets of Colossae, he was a living testimony to how great the Christian God is. 
Isn't that a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters? Here is Paul, and he sends Onesimus back, and the man who was a condemned, guilty slave becomes a living testimony to the greatness of God. And you think about it, brethren and sisters, that's what you and I are. And that's what you and I will be for all eternity, is a testimony to the greatness of God. And you can think of examples. And again, let's let's really let our imagination run riot this time. I I remember reading a biography of a man called Fred Lemon, who was uh, a criminal in the East End of London uh, a number of years ago, and he got saved. Now you imagine, and you'll, you'll you'll pardon the inaccurate theology of all of this, but you imagine the day that Fred Lemon arrives in heaven. And one angel turns to another and says, who's that? Well, that's Fred Lemon. How did Fred Lemon? He, he was the man who, who stole and who nearly killed him. How did he ever get here? Well, that's just a testimony to how great the work of Calvary was. And you can imagine, again, you'll, you'll pardon the inaccuracy of all of this, but you, you understand the point that I'm making. You, you imagine those angels looking round. Who's that over there? Saul of Tarsus. The, the one that, that killed him. Aye, that's him. How did he get here? Well, that's just the work of Calvary. And brethren and sisters, can you imagine what it must be like to look round the entire assembled uh, gathering of redeemed sinners and see in every one of them just a testimony to how great the work of Calvary was. The final outcome of, of reconciliation, with this I'll sit down, is the prospect of, of, of these three parties all being united. Prepare me a lodging, I trust that your prayers to be given unto you shortly. Imagine what a day that must have been. When Paul and Onesimus and Philemon were all together for the first time. As a testimony of how great the work of God in the heart of a man can be. What about you and me in the meeting today? You're here today and you're not saved. You can be reconciled to God because the price has been paid to make that possible for you. You're here in the meeting today and you are saved. And there's something between you and another believer. Brethren and sisters, let's seek to put these things right. And as God would give help to live in a way that would glorify him.